Hello, and welcome to this FRDH podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. A listener in Canada asked me to do a podcast about resistance. Big subject. Here goes. Resistance is a beautiful word. It's a romantic word, and it's the word of the moment on everyone's lips. Well, maybe not everyone's, but in my social networks and in the news outlets that inform the democratic side of the argument in America, people are speaking the word and signing up for it in their hearts. Resistance. MSNBC straplines The Resistance on a segment with Michael Moore. Time runs an essay. The Resistance is not the new Tea Party. The word's revival is not entirely connected to Donald Trump becoming president. Resistance came back into use a while ago. The anti-globalization movement revived it in the late 1990s, and the word got a further push following the failure to stop the Iraq War. It has resided on the fringes of the left ever since. Six or seven years ago, in my neighborhood in London, there was a festival of resistance. Its total impact was virtually nil. British society, like American society, indeed like most societies in the developed world, has continued a steady rightward drift, the Occupy movement notwithstanding. But what does resistance really mean? Are you a resistor if you simply say you are? Forgive my skepticism, but anyone can call themselves a resistor and put a hashtag in front of it. Does that make them part of the resistance? Real resistance has an objective, and it always comes at a price. In Paris, at number 60 Rue de Seine, the place where that left bank street bends around the Palais Mazarin, is a small memorial plaque marking the spot where Jacques Francesco was shot and killed on August 24, 1944. He was working behind the lines under an assumed name, part of the French resistance's final action of World War II, a general uprising in the French capital. The day after Francesco was shot, Paris was liberated. I saw the plaque for the first time in the summer of 1970. I was a student and traveling around Europe before starting a junior year abroad in England. There are other such plaques dotted around Paris, but the reason this one made me stand stock still and think was the date, which added a level of bitter irony to that hero's death. Just one more day and Francesco would have lived. Every time I have visited Paris in the subsequent five decades, I've made a pilgrimage to the place to honor his courage and meditate on the fact that as he died, he could probably hear the city's liberators on the other side of the Seine, just a few hundred yards away. I also ask myself, would I have had the courage? In recent years, further scholarship has revealed more about him. Jacques Francesco was a nom de guerre. The resistance fighter's real name was Auguste Fenieu. His killers were not the Germans, but the Milices, the French fascist militia who worked enthusiastically with the Nazis to preserve the new order for the ages, even as it crumbled after a mere five years. Fenieu, a.k.a. Francesco, was shot one day later than claimed on the plaque. No time of death is mentioned at the memorial, but it's extraordinary to know that as he fought the French fascists on the left bank, over on the right bank, the Germans were surrendering, and free French troops, led by Charles de Gaulle, were beginning their march down the Champs-Élysées before tearful, cheering crowds. 
a year after he returned from service in the Vietnam War. Former Secretary of State John Kerry returned the medals he had won in combat. Then, in testimony to the U.S. Senate, asked, who wants to be the last man to die for a mistake? This death in Paris leads to a paraphrase. Who wants to be the last man to die in a victorious cause? Do true resistors even think in those terms? Anyway, the romance of the French resistance runs deep and, of course, has little to do with the current situation in the U.S. America hasn't been conquered by a foreign army. Donald Trump was legitimately elected. And you can't fast forward reality. His White House is chaotic, and with the exception of immigrant roundups, people have little specific actions so far to resist. But since the word has been taken up by those opposed to the president, it's worth retelling the story of France and other modern moments of resistance briefly to see if there are any lessons that might be useful in the U.S. today. Almost from the moment the German army overran France in June 1940, there was resistance. Acts of non-cooperation with German orders or scrawling anti-Nazi graffiti on walls. It was spontaneous and uncoordinated and it had little effect. The new administration of the country took shape anyway. A zone of occupation run by the Germans in the north, headquartered in Paris, a French-run government based in Vichy oversaw the south. Very quickly, this new normal became established fact. From the beginning, the resistance, think of it as being written without a capital R at that point, was as disparate as French society. All manner of people and groups resisted without any central coordination. The resistors came from the right and the left, men and women. They were Catholics, Protestants, and Jews. And the first resistor to be shot was a Jewish emigre from Poland. France, in the decades before war broke out, was Europe's sanctuary country. All manner of people fleeing political upheaval in Russia and Central Europe and Spain had moved there. Israel Karp was summarily executed in Bordeaux two months after France surrendered for jeering a parade of German soldiers marching past. Two weeks later, a young Frenchman, Pierre Roche, was shot for cutting phone lines near the Atlantic coast port of La Rochelle. Armed resistance to the Nazi occupation took almost a year to begin. Before that, there were tests of French unity and scope of anti-German feeling. On New Year's Day, 1941, the Nazis were handing out free food. The occupation had completely screwed up the French economy, and hunger and malnutrition were a real problem. Speaking on the BBC from London, Charles de Gaulle called on the French to stay indoors at the time of the food distribution. And many did. It wasn't until the French communists joined in, shortly after the invasion of the Soviet Union, one year after France was subjugated, that the resistance became more than small, everyday acts of non-cooperation. Violence escalated. German reprisals were even more bloody. The order was 50 Frenchmen would be shot for every German killed by the resistance. Still, there was no coordination, no single resistance organization. Murdering a German might seem like a great idea to one militant group, to another group whose members came from a village near the murder scene and where innocent men, women, and children would be plucked from their beds and killed in reprisal, it might seem like an act of idiocy. And all the while, the two parts of France carried on the Nazis' bureaucratic and bestial policies, Trains left for the death camps in the East, carrying Jews, communists, Roma, and resistors of all types. 
Eventually, in late May 1943, all the main resistance groups gathered for a clandestine meeting and agreed a unified structure under the leadership of Jean Moulin. A month later, Moulin was betrayed to the Gestapo and tortured to death. Resistance, of course, wasn't just happening in France. Partisans fought the Nazis all over Europe. It's interesting that in countries that ultimately ended up under the communist umbrella, the word used is partisan rather than resistance. Anyway, even in Germany, there was resistance. The leaders of the White Rose Group met the same fate as Jean Moulin, but at least their death was swift. They were guillotined. The reason for telling you all this is to point out that the myth of the French resistance, heroes fighting to the last moment against impossible odds, was not the historic reality. After the war, de Gaulle encouraged the myth that the majority of the French had resisted the invader. Only a handful had collaborated. Around the time I first saw the memorial plaque to Jacques Francesco, a quarter of a century after the end of the war, filmmaker Marcelo Fuels was putting the finishing touches to his documentary, The Sorrow and the Pity. This five-hour-long film challenged the Gaullist myth. Scholars continue to challenge it. It's easy to claim to be a resistor. Many in France did, but only a few were part of a group that worked actively to overthrow the Nazi occupation. During the war, most tried to make the best of a bad situation and took the attitude of wait and see. Closer to America, in historical time, is resistance to the Vietnam War, particularly the draft that made every male in my broad age group a potential soldier in that conflict. Non-cooperation with the draft was called resistance. An organization named Resistance was started by David Harris. Harris served time in a federal prison for his anti-draft activities. I hope by now you understand that there's a theme to this edition of FRDH podcast. Resistance is a beautiful word, but it is meaningless unless those who hashtag resist are willing to pay a very high price. To resist meant to leave the legal path and to act as a criminal, Columbia University historian Istvan Deac observes in his book on the French Resistance. Resistance is the readiness to incur lethal personal risk, writes German-Israeli historian Michael Wolfson. Resistance isn't necessarily about direct action against a regime. The Royal Academy of Arts in London has a show on at the moment called America After the Fall. It's a selection of 45 paintings from the 1930s, all deal, one way or another, with the upheavals in society in that dramatic decade. I went to the opening, and it was impossible to keep the word resistance out of my mind. The works on show are political pamphlets and paint. The picture that illustrates this podcast at the website is in the exhibition. It's a portrait of Patrick Whelan, a union organizer based in Baltimore in the 1930s, painted by Alice Neal. Neal shows the man seated at a table reading The Daily Worker. Whelan's face is resolute, careworn, indomitable. His fists clenched, a boxer in a fight that he realizes he just might be losing, but won't give up on. It's a perfect visualization of the price paid by those who not only resist, but fight for change. It goes without saying that Whelan, a communist who organized merchant seamen shipping off the Baltimore docks, resisted the status quo and paid the price. He was arrested, got into his share of fights. 
when World War II began, he went back to sea in the Merchant Marine on convoys resupplying Britain. He didn't have to. He was 58. He went down with his ship when it was torpedoed by a German U-boat. Alice Neal, who painted the portrait, was also a resistor. She lived a life that fought back against every bourgeois expectation of what a woman should be. She paid a terrible price in poverty for being an artist and a woman who made her own choices about relationships and her politics. She was lucky, though. She lived long enough to see her work recognized. Resistance. Beautiful word. But it is just a word. It is a name for something. It is not the thing itself. It is not action. If it helps people get over the shock of change to add hashtag resistance to their messages, fine. But more important than the word is this question. What is a meaningful way to act in a political order you find wicked or shameful? Should you act as an individual or be part of an organization? Is speaking out resistance or just a first step towards it? A final story from France in World War II. 3,000 feet above sea level in the Cévennes, a mountainous area at the southern end of the Massif Central, is the village of Le Chambon sur Lignon. During the war, this village of several thousand inhabitants managed to shelter around 800 Jews and helped organize the transport of several thousand more, mostly children, to safety in neutral Switzerland. On a clear day, after one of the brutal thunderstorms that scour the region, you can look due east over the Rhone Valley and see the Alps. The Cévennes is isolated by topography and climate and has attracted dissenters for centuries. It is a redoubt of Protestantism in Catholic France. During the war, the area's isolation meant it could offer a place of refuge for Jews and its clergymen, calling for their congregants to use weapons of the spirit, encouraged and organized the rescue. The task was complicated when a convalescent hospital for German soldiers was opened in the village. The story is told in a wonderful book, Village of Secrets, by Caroline Moorhead. Anyone who thinks of themselves as a resistor should read the book, not because it offers how-to-do-it knowledge on resistance, although there is something to be learned about carrying on as normal in public while actively disrupting a regime outside the public space, but because it makes readers ask themselves the questions I ask myself every time I visit Paris and walk down the Rue de Seine to stand silently for a moment by the plaque to Jacques Francesco. Would I really have the courage? Would I give my life, even when victory was in earshot? And that's all for this edition of FRDH Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can hear more, much more, at the website www.goldfarbpod.com. You can also get in touch with suggestions for future editions. And you can make a donation to keep these podcasts coming.